Well, it's good to be with you again, brothers and sisters. It's a privilege to be here. I bring you greetings again from your brothers and sisters at South Shore Baptist Church in, on the South Shore of Boston, Massachusetts. And greetings in the name of our Lord. If you have a Bible, would you open to Acts chapter 10? The passage is also printed in the bulletin. If you got one of those when you came in and you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 10. There are moments in human history when walls of hostility and separation that divide people come crashing down. It doesn't happen often enough. In fact, it's rather rare. But when it does happen, it is a wonderful thing to behold. I remember the the first such wall collapse that uh, struck me So when I was a teenager, it was November of 1989, and I watched on television as the Berlin Wall came down, and to see people climbing up on that wall and hammering on it, and from both sides. You know, I I had grown up in the United States. I had always known of the Cold War. It was always East versus West, Russia versus America, democracy versus communism, and that wall symbolized that divide between those two ideologies and backgrounds. And and so to be staring at the television and seeing people pounding on the wall with sledgehammers, I I just didn't have a category for that. It was amazing. My parents' generation saw an amazing wall come down in the United States. It was an invisible wall that separated people based upon the color of their skin. And so if, if you looked a certain way, you could only drink at certain water fountains and eat in certain restaurants and ride in certain places on the bus and use certain toilets and not other ones. And and that wall came crashing down in the civil rights movement in the United States. And it was a remarkable thing and there's still more work to be done. Maybe you've had a wall collapse in an interpersonal relationship. An enemy became a friend. Uh, a, a marriage that, that seemed dead and gone was somehow reconciled. S- something that, that was there and it seemed permanent, there would always be this hostility. God's brought it back together. Like I said, that doesn't happen often enough, but when it does, it's a remarkable thing to behold. Well, today here in Acts chapter 10, we are going to read about perhaps the most significant wall collapse in all of the story of humanity. The most meaningful and profound division was brought down in this chapter. And in fact, it's a wall collapse that continues to have repercussions and rumblings right up to today, right into the 21st century, right in this room. And yet, it's a wall collapse that we probably don't think about very much. We, we don't, uh, you know, ponder this one. We don't sit back every day and say, you know, oh, Acts chapter 10, what a chapter. I mean, we just, we, we don't even realize it. And yet, it has huge ramifications for what God is doing in the world today. And that wall collapses, the wall that separated Jew from Gentile. And what's remarkable about this wall collapse, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 10, is that it wasn't brought down because the Jews decided to bring it down. Nor was it brought down because the Gentiles decided to scale it and bring it down. God himself, through direct action, brought down this wall. Because it was God's plan from before time to bring salvation to the whole world. 
Let's look at the story. Acts chapter 10 is an interesting story. It centers on two characters that we're going to meet. One is a Gentile named Cornelius, and the other is a Jewish Christian named Peter, who is one of, as many of you know, one of the Lord's apostles, kind of his right, Jesus' right-hand man. And, uh, and Peter is going to bring the gospel to Cornelius. The wall needs to come down. But before the wall can come down so that the Gentiles can come to know Jesus, a wall has to come down in Peter's heart as well. And so it's really the story of two conversions, of, of two wall collapses. Let's look at the story in Acts chapter 10. It says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came and said to him, Cornelius, looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, What is it, Lord? The angel said to him, Your prayers and acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the story begins with a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a centurion, an officer in the Roman military. He's in a place called Caesarea, which from Jerusalem is about 60 miles north along the Mediterranean coast. And, and there he is, he's, he's praying and, and uh, he's seeking God. He's probably not a Jewish convert, but what's something uh, that was often called a God-fearer, who would be a Gentile who was sympathetic to the Jewish faith and was kind of studying it and learning about it. So he hadn't gone all the way and converted to Judaism and been circumcised and adopted the whole customs, but he was, he was a friend of the Jews. So if you think about that wall separating Jew and Gentile, Cornelius lived right up against the wall. He was close. And he has a vision. Out of the blue, God sends an angel to him and says, go get Peter. And here's his address. And that's where you'll find him. And so Cornelius, like a good Roman soldier, you know, yes, sir. And he gets three guys and he says, go get Peter. This is what happened. And, and so they begin this 30-mile uh, journey south down to Joppa, maybe a long day on horseback, day and a half on foot. Um, but that's not the only vision. God's going to speak to Peter, too. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the household about, housetop about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were praying, uh, or while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I've never eaten anything common or ritually unclean. Again, a second time a voice said to him, What God has made clean, you must not call common. This happened three times. And then the object was taken up to heaven. 
So God has spoken to Cornelius in a vision, sent him to Peter, but before the, the, the servants and the soldier come to Peter, Peter has a vision. He's hungry. He goes up on the roof to pray, and he falls into this visionary trance. Uh, except the difference is Cornelius's vision made sense. Peter's vision is flat-out weird. What a strange vision. Is, is he just hungry, and he's having kind of food hallucinations? I mean, what... It's, it's strange. What's happening here? This sheet comes down and there's animals in it and kill and eat and I don't want to. You know, why didn't Peter want to eat in the vision? Well, it's because the animals that were in the blanket were unclean, non-kosher animals. It, you know, that passage was read for us earlier in the service from Deuteronomy 14. And it had all the lists of the animals that the people of Israel were allowed to eat and the lists of animals that they weren't allowed to eat, the clean and the unclean. Um, and, and so apparently, we get, guess this from the context, Peter looked in the blanket and it was literally a pig in a blanket. You know what I'm saying? It was an <laughs> unclean animal. He looked in the blanket and he saw reptiles and you know pigs and camels and all the things he's not supposed to eat as a Jewish person. And it was gross. You know, I could just imagine Peter kind of gagging as he looked in there because he never had eaten that stuff. You know, by the way, why did God give those food laws to the Israelites? I think sometimes we think that the reason he gave them the food laws is is for health reasons, like don't eat that so you can lower your cholesterol. And and some people have thought it was kind of a a diet thing. That, That wasn't it. The reason he gave them those food laws was to reinforce yet again that they were the set apart holy people of God. They were God's people. They were not like the nations. The nations worshipped all kinds of gods, gods of the sun and the moon and the river, and they were to worship the one true God, the God who made heaven and earth. The nations worshipped with statues. The Israelites were not supposed to worship with any statues. The, The nations practiced immorality and bloodshed and evil and they were to follow God's moral laws. They were to be set apart. And, and then to just further reinforce and cement this idea of separation to God. It was even kind of uh, hardwired into their food. Not that food was bad, but it was even as they ate, it would be a reminder, we're separate, we're different, we're gods, we're not unclean, we're clean. And so the food was, it was a symbol, it was a, a living parable, a three times a day parable reminding them that they were set apart for God. So you can imagine Peter looking into the, the blanket and just thinking, this is gross and wrong, and I've never eaten these things. He, he probably felt dirty just looking into the blanket. But then comes the word in verse 15. What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. If, if you have a Bible and a pencil, I mean, that's a verse worth underlining and dog-earing and starring to remember that that's, that's a theme here. That the same God who gave the law and the old covenant in Moses and said certain foods are clean and certain foods are unclean, that same God in the new covenant in Christ says, don't call it unclean anymore. So Peter's sitting there thinking about this strange vision. Why did it come anyway? Why did that vision happen? What, did he tell? what a strange vision, right? Well, it's to prepare Peter for what's about to happen. Because what's about to happen? There's going to be a knock on the door. And there's going to be people inviting him to dinner. And who are they? Three Gentiles. Suddenly, there's three Gentiles at the door saying, Could you come to 
Caesarea and Cornelius, and it's kind of weird, but, you know, he had a vision, and would you be okay with that? And, and normally, a Jewish person who was at that time would not have gone because they couldn't go in the home of a Gentile. They couldn't associate. In fact, Peter says as much. If, if you look down a little further in the story, I, I don't want to ruin everything, but, but look down at verse 28. Eventually, Peter's going to get to Cornelius. And he's going to say to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. So Peter has connected the dots. The food was symbolizing the separateness of God's people, the wall of separation. And God is saying that wall is coming down. You can go now, Peter. You can talk to them. We live very far away from this story. This story is kind of a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, we, we really don't have a, a Jewish-Gentile separation in the church today like we used to. I mean, way back then it was all Jewish Christians and there weren't any Gentile Christians. And now in today's church, I mean, well, you know, just look at you. It's, it's Gentiles from every nation, including myself. Whereas people who are raised in a Jewish context who come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, they tend to be not the majority in most churches. And not only that, no one really cares anymore. You know, we have people in our church, in my church back home, who are raised in a Jewish background and they believe in Jesus and they tell you they're from a Jewish background and you just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Well, get a cup, another cup of coffee, went over here and hang out. I mean, no one really cares. It's not, these issues aren't there anymore. But I'll tell you one thing that hasn't changed. And I see it in my own heart. It is the human sinful capacity to consider certain people unclean and to write certain people off. At least Peter had the excuse of the Old Testament. I don't even have that excuse. They're just people. They're differences. Maybe a different tribal group, maybe a different political party, a different lifestyle, histories between people that create animosities, and, and we're hesitant to, to reach out to certain people because we instinctively think of them as, I don't want to associate with them. I remember once I got to go to um, Macedonia for a week and do some Bible teaching, and it was a great, beautiful country. Got to go through Greece and Macedonia and hanging out with the Macedonians and beautiful people. But, but one of the things I found there is that, is, is that there's some bad blood between the Macedonians and the Greeks. And they're trying to explain it to me and, you know, the land that, that they say, no, that's Macedonia. And they try to go back to Alexander the Great. And, you know, it's like thousands of year old animosities and all this. And, you know, stupid, dumb American. I was just like, well, you guys kind of look the same to me. I just can't tell the difference, you know. And they're like, huh, you know, so... Cultural insensitivity, 101. <laughs> but then I think about that. I have the same things in my heart. They could probably come here and look at me and say, Jeremy, we don't understand. You know, why do you have these strange lines that you draw between different kinds of people where you wouldn't go to that group or, or you wouldn't speak to that person? Maybe it would be a different ethnicity. Maybe it would be... Uh, a different profession, or, you know, or, or someone who, who you think is is in doing sinful things. Like, for instance, in America, what what if it was someone who came, knocked on your door, and said, "I'd like you to come for dinner," and you found out they're a doctor, and you're like, "Oh, great, a doctor! How how upstanding!" But then you found out they were an abortion doctor. Would I go have dinner with them? What, what if it was a woman who came to my door and said, "You know, we're new in the neighborhood. We'd love for you to come to our house, have dinner." 
And, the, and she invited you to come have dinner with her and her wife, with their adopted child. Maybe that sounds strange. It's not strange in Boston. We have one of those families right across the street from our church. Would you say, ah, oh, hmm, I don't, would I go there? Would, would I be a part of that? I find that these, these divisions are in my own heart, and it's easy to point at others and say, I don't understand why you're like that, but I understand why I'm like that, because of course I would feel that way. I think sometimes we have a theological, abstract belief that the gospel is for everyone, but at a kind of practical, visceral level, we, we wouldn't want to be God's envoy to everyone. You know, yeah, God can save them, but not, I don't want to do it. Maybe that person who's like them. But God is breaking down the barriers. And no one now is unclean. No one is too far from the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. So Peter goes. And uh, look at verse 17. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision had, might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out asking of Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and accompany them with no doubts at all because I have sent them. God is bringing this wall down. God's giving directions the whole way. He's sovereign over this whole story. This is totally his thing that he's doing. He's overruling and leading and guiding. Verse 21, Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. And Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up, set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And while talking with him, he went on in and found out that many had come together there. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I asked, why did you send for me? And then Cornelius tells the story again. Verse, 20, verse 30, Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. And just then a man in a dazzling robe stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Therefore, I immediately sent for you, and you did the right thing in coming. So, we are all present before God to hear everything you've been commanded by the Lord. I think my favorite person in this story is Cornelius. I love him. You know, there's all this drama going on. But Cornelius, maybe it's just because he was a soldier and it was all simple and following orders. But he's so open-hearted. You know, the, he, he loves the Jewish people. And then the voice says, go get the Peter. And he just says, yes, sir. And he sends the soldiers. And then when, when they get here, he's, he's humble before Peter, a little too humble. And he has his whole family there. He's like, well, we're here. So whatever the Lord wants to say through you, we're all ears. Speak it. I love that heart. 
I wish I had that heart more often. Sometimes I come to church and I don't have that heart. I'm thinking about other things. I'm, I'm bothered. But this is the attitude with which I need to gather with my brothers and sisters in church. Lord, I'm here to hear everything that you want to say. Everything the Lord has commanded. If you go to a Bible study or a, a group with other Christians, this is the attitude. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're curious, you're interested, but you're, you still have questions and you're trying to figure that out. And, and can I just commend to you the example of Cornelius? This is the attitude of the person to whom God reveals himself. This is the person who says, Lord, I'm ready to hear what you have to say. You, you know, this is a good prayer to pray if, if you're not yet a Christian, but, but you're wondering and seeking. It's, God, if you're there, I want to hear from you. I want to really know you know, the attitude of the skeptic, you know, prove it. Well, that's not a good enough proof. Try proving it again. Ah, you know, it, skepticism is easy. That's the easiest position to be as a skeptic. Because you can always raise another doubt. I mean, you could be a skeptic and see an angel. And you could be like, well, it could have been a hallucination. Or those Christians, I mean, they're pretty high tech. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no proof I saw an angel. I mean, you can always doubt everything. Skepticism is the easy road. But this is, I believe, the, the way sh we should all be, whether we're Christians or not yet Christians, was just say, Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. Be open-minded and open-hearted. So Peter, what do you got to say? And Well, Peter really didn't have a message from God. Not that we saw here in the text. He, he wasn't given a, a special message. So what does Peter do? He does what we should always do when there's an opportunity. He goes straight to the gospel. Every time you have an open door, go straight to the gospel. Because it's the gospel that saves. You know, it's great to talk about your church. It's great to talk about questions that people have, and we need to engage those. But what we all need to hear, and what everyone needs to hear, is the gospel. And so Peter says, well, I'm just going to tell you the gospel. You know, I've probably said the word gospel 20 times already in this sermon, but you know, what is the gospel? Again, maybe you're kind of new to this whole thing and you're wondering, what is the gospel? Well, it's a message. It's the good news. Even those of us who are Christians who understand the gospel, if you had 45 seconds to tell someone the gospel, could you do it? Did you have like a 45-second gospel explanation? That might be something to do at lunch today. As you're standing around talking, say, okay, let's just try this. 45 seconds, gospel, go. And then let the other person quiz you. And just, just see if you can do it, you know? And, and you're like, oh, yeah, I got this. And then, then you start talking. You're like, ah, oh, well, there's God and Jesus. So wait a minute, give me a chance. It's something good to know, just to rehearse the gospel in your own mind so that we're ready. So let's look at what Peter has to say about the gospel. Verse 34, Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. The mental wall in Peter's mind of, of Jew versus Gentile is just collapsing. And the further this conversation goes, the more Peter's like, wow, God is really the savior of the nations. He's having this accelerated worldview change. Verse 36 He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news. Here's the good news, here's the gospel peace through Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ, the walls of hostility come down. He is the Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout Judea, 
beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how uh, he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and Jerusalem. So he starts to tell them about Jesus. There's Jesus. He did miracles. He's kind of relaying the gospel story. And, and he healed people and he cast out demons and he was sent from God. But then he really gets to the nub of the gospel right there in, at the middle of verse 39. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. He was crucified. But God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was raised on the third day. Those are gospel basics. Verse 41, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses, appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus, come to bring us peace. That's the good news. Through his death, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and he's returning as the judge. It's there you have the basic components of the, the announcement. And then here's the response. Here, here's what we're supposed to do. Verse 43, all the prophets testify about him, about Jesus, that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. That by believing in Jesus, by, by recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and then putting your faith in Jesus, there's forgiveness from God that comes. You see, there is actually, there's actually a bigger wall that came down, even bigger than the Jew-Gentile wall. I said that was the biggest. It's kind of the second biggest. There's an even bigger one. And, and in fact, the Jew-Gentile wall compared to this big one is like, whoop, you know, really small. Add up all the walls between all human beings together and it's really whoop, small compared to the ultimate big wall that needed to come down. And the greatest wall collapse that ever happened and that ever needed to happen was the wall of our sin that separates us from God. That is humanity's biggest problem. That's why there are all the other little walls. They're all just manifestations of our sin and our separation from God. You know, if, if you have a Bible with you, turn to... Just real quick, I'm going to show you one interesting verse. Mark chapter 7. If you don't, just listen. It's really simple. Maybe you can look on with the person next to you. Or just listen. This is, this is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus also taught about clean and unclean, about what makes us separated from God. So this is Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And Jesus, this is back a few years before the events in Acts. Jesus is talking to his followers and it says in verse 14, he said to them, listen to me, you all, and understand nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. And when he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? You know, how dumb are you guys? Don't you get this? <laughs> Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And as a result, he made all foods clean. Food can't separate you from God. I mean, come on, right? 
What's the difference between pork and beef? It was just protein. It's carbohydrates. You know, it, it's, it's sodium and it's, it's minerals. And you eat it and your body digests it. And you don't have, you know, cells for unclean food and cells for... It's just, it's food. It doesn't matter. It's, it's all just chemicals. It's all God's creation. God made the whole world and he said it's good. The world is good. Th- those, those food laws were symbols pointing to spiritual realities. The reality has now come and his name is Jesus. And so all of the parables have, are, are kind of, well, they've served their purpose. You don't have to do those anymore. You know, food can't make you clean. Doing certain postures in worshiping God doesn't make you clean or unclean. Washing or or other rituals can't make you clean. I mean, really. Don't you know people who've, who've done lots of religious things and yet they still have sin coming out of them? I do. I look at one in the mirror every morning when I get up to shave. You know? I've been trying to be religious, but I still find there's junk in my heart. Like, verse 20, listen to this. What comes out of a person from the heart, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come, and then get this list, evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these come from within and defile a person. That's why religious ritual is at best a pointer to the only true righteousness, which is a righteousness that only God can give. Only God can change my heart. I need God to wash away the guilt of my sin, and I need my heart changed so that I can now resist sin. And don't you see that's what Jesus did through his death on the cross? His blood forgave and cleansed me of all my shame, all my sinful acts. And through the power of his resurrection, I now have power to live a different life and to learn how to be a truly godly person, not in some ritual way, but in a truly moral way that comes from the inside out. That's what this new covenant is all about. It's awesome. It's amazing. You see, God brought the wall down, the wall between us and him by taking care of our sin. As those soldiers stretched out Jesus' arms on the cross and they pounded away on the stakes. Can't you hear it? Every one of those hammer blows on the stake was God pounding away at my sin. And every drop of blood that fell from Jesus' body and splattered on the ground was the sound of the divine sledgehammer pulverizing my guilt. And as Jesus yelled in his last breath, it is finished. That was the rumble of the avalanche of the wall collapsing. And as the stone was rolled away and pushed aside, that was the broom sweeping up the debris as I was set free. Only God could separate, break that separation between us and Him. Only He could wash away my sin. So I just want you to know here this morning, no matter who you are, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your cultural background, the walls have been, are able to be brought down for everyone who repents and believes in Jesus. That if you repent and believe in Christ, if you say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, I can't save myself. 
And you see the beauty of God's salvation, not a man-made ritualized salvation, but a heaven-sent salvation of his own son, crucified and buried and raised. That just believing in that, as it says in verse 43, you get forgiveness of sins. Everyone can be saved and forgiven. You can, right now. You say, what do I have to do? Is there a class? Is there a ritual? Do I have to say this or do that? No, just believe. Just believe right where you are. Repent and believe. And and you can be saved. Even for those of us who are Christians, though, I, I think, again, sometimes we Christians struggle with knowing the theological truths, like God can save anyone, but doesn't go to our hearts, but I don't want to talk to that guy. Same thing. Yeah, Jesus has forgiven all my sins, but it hasn't totally gotten here. We say, well, there's that one thing. Hmm. I don't know about that. Maybe he's, I don't know if he's forgiven that. That memory, that humiliating thing you did, that, that skeleton in your closet, that thing maybe you've not even told your spouse about from your past that you're just ashamed of. And sometimes we walk around with the guilt of that hanging over us. As we think about our former life, days before our conversion, we remember that thing with shame and humiliation. Brothers and sisters, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. He's cleansed us. We're saved. And so Peter's preaching. And, and get this, verse 44, just to wrap this up right here. He doesn't even get to finish the sermon. That's frustrating for a preacher. It's like, the, the Holy Spirit, wait a minute, I'm not done. I got this illustration. No, no. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, just telling the gospel, the simple gospel, no, no tricks, no arguments, just the gospel. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded. So the Jewish Christians were like, what? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. So so if you know the story of Acts, just as the Jewish Christians received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this is now a Gentile Pentecost. It's another Pentecost. It's actually a Samaritan Pentecost in chapter 8. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. It's It's the pattern of Acts. And now there's a Gentile Pentecost. And so now the, the Jewish Christians are flabbergasted. They're like, well, they, they didn't have to get kosher. They didn't have to get circumcised. and they didn't, they didn't even do anything. Well, yeah, they did. They believed. That's it. And they were given the Holy Spirit. And the implication is God's pure Holy Spirit would not dwell in anything that's unclean. They're clean. God has accepted them. So Peter responded, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay with him for a few days. Oh, that's all it takes is belief in Christ. And now the walls are down. Now Jew and Gentile are together. And it's happened because God has forgiven them both and reconciled them. And so the church is God's reconciled people. It, it, it's so beautiful. It, it's so awesome to be here in Dubai and to, to see that theological truth in all of the, the people who are here because there's no longer a barrier between Jew and Greek. If, if you're a Jewish person and I'm a Gentile person and we've both been reconciled to God, we have a unity that transcends ethnicity, language, 
socioeconomic status. We, we have a, a heavenly unity, a, a heavenly culture that we share. There's no longer separation between Jew and Gentile. God brings down all the walls among his people, liberal and conservative, black and white, Manchester United and Liverpool, <laughs> Russian and Ukrainian, Pakistani and Indian, Israeli and Palestinian, Hutu and Tutsi, Korean and Japanese and Chinese, Irish and Northern Irish and Scottish and British and even Welsh, Brahmins and untouchables, Shias and Sunnis, Greeks and Macedonians. All of those distinctions have been surmounted by our unity in Christ. So it's so important that you love each other as a church. It's so important that, that your unity as a church not just be in the diversity of faces in pews or, or in seats here on a Friday morning, but, but it's, a, it's the, the love that you have. When, when people see all these relationships between different people who out in the world aren't brothers and sisters to each other. So, so if we're going to proclaim that people can be reconciled to God, if that's the jewel that we're going to hold up before the world, then the, the unity of a diverse church are the prongs that hold up that jewel. And say, look, God really reconciles. Look at us. You know, we have all kinds of reasons not to be friends. But God has done something greater than culture, greater than nationality. He is bringing the kingdom of God on earth. And we are the harbingers and the first fruits of that. But there's still more work to be done. Cornelius' conversion was not the token Gentile. It was just the beginning of an avalanche of Gentiles. And there's still more to come. I love that you guys prayed for the unreached people groups at the beginning of your service, or in the middle of your service. You know, there's, there's still people. Other, other people have never heard about Jesus. And so this work isn't done. We can say, yeah, look what God has done, but there's more to do. Many of you come from nations where uh, there are tribes and there are people groups, and you know of them that are over a mountain or beyond a river who've never heard the gospel. There's no known Christians among them. And, and you are God's tools. You know, who knows how long you'll be in Dubai. Maybe you'll go home. Maybe God would put that on your hearts. Because this is God's plan, to tear down all the barriers and to tear them down in our unity in Jesus so that he might have a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to show the, the greatness of his grace. God is the savior of all nations and all peoples. And so as Jesus said, this gospel must be preached to all nations as a testimony to all peoples. And then when that's finished... The end will come. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, I do pray that we would treasure you and treasure our salvation and believe it deeply. Oh Lord, take these truths and just press them down into our hearts, God. I pray, Lord, for this church that it would evince brotherly and sisterly love that cuts across all the natural boundaries that normally keep people together apart. And I pray, God, that when, when people wonder what is it that makes that church, what's the glue of that church, we might point to the gospel. God, I pray for anyone who's here today who's not yet a Christian but is inquiring, is wondering, is searching. I pray, Lord, that you would give them an open heart that would pray like Cornelius, whatever you have to say, I want to hear. 
Oh God, may they hear the good news of Jesus. I pray that you would bring us all to the end of our self-righteous rituals and our self-righteous do-gooderism and help us to see that there is only one name under heaven. And God, may we put our faith in him and find the joy of our commonality at the foot of the cross. We pray this in his name. Amen.